Though the letters in this book do not have your name on them, consider that they are yours. For surely, if he could have, C.S. Lewis would have written them to you. This is Page of Jack, Season 7, Episode 15. Dear children, letters to children are true. Dear Pints with Jack listeners, thank you for downloading this episode of Pints with Jack, the podcast where we discuss the work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading some of Lewis's letters, which have been brought together in several different collections. In season seven, we've already read his correspondence with Mary Willis Shelburne, found in Letters to an American Lady, which leaves his Letters to Children and his exchange of Latin letters with St. Giovanni Calabria. The opening quotation comes from a note written by Marjorie Lamp Mead at the beginning of Letters to Children. And in the last episode, we looked at all of the introductory sections of that book, and today we're going to be digging into the letters themselves. All blessings, Andrew, David, and Matt. How are you two doing this fine morning? Mm, doing well. It's actually fun when we do these, these Friday morning recordings because I do mass with the buddy, and then I get about an hour before coming here, and him and I grab coffee, so... Lovely way to start the morning celebrating the mass. And I think I say this every time. <laughs> I love- That's why we I keep love you around. When, <laughs> yeah, I love a new book because it's always a different format and a little- So yes, listeners are like, well, what are you talking about? This is just letters again. We're not going in like a chronological order. We decided these were a little bit of a different type of letter. And so I'm looking forward to this more topic-based, categorical-based conversation and more of a back and forth. And and not because I don't like the other ones. It's just change is always fun. Seasons, you know, it's very liturgical of me, I know. (laughs) Stir it up, mix it up. (laughs) I'm doing well. Um, It's a big week at the church and we have our Episcopal visit. Our bishop is coming to confirm and baptize and reaffirm and lay hands on, oh, over 30 folks at church this weekend. So, wonderful, lots of good stuff. But as I'll mention in the toast, I met with a Pints of Jack listener last night and just reminds me how much I love this community. (laughs) (laughs) Well, winter has finally come to La Crosse. We've had a ton of snow. Negative temperatures. Yes. Uh, so we've actually basically been hunkered down for this past week. Mm. Uh, and actually, even some beer, which I had delivered to my house, came pre-chilled. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Andrew's showing us 61 degrees. Yeah, we're currently suffering through 61 and sunny. It's it's miserable Ugh. here. All the Floridians uh. are flipping out. <laughs> and David, you're probably in a spot that's like, you probably get 5 to 10 degrees colder than me. I mean, we were at the zero. We're now at like 15 um, you guys probably got to the negative in that that mm-hmm. stretch, didn't you? We did indeed. Oof. But it just means that you stay indoors and drink hot chocolate. And this is when it's also really good that I work from home because I just don't leave it when it's that cold. As someone who's lived in San Diego, you have as well, David, in the warm spot. I love the warmth for sure. But you can take advantage of the seasons. I mean, it can be a really mm. beautiful thing with the snow outside, a little of the, what's that term, Heige, Wiggy, which is like the art of coziness. You know, you just embrace the art of coziness. <laughs> There's that book. I love it. Well, what is everyone drinking today? Coffee. <laughs> okay. Well, that was nice and simple. Uh, <laughs> so, we should keep this going. Hey, Andrew just dropped off. <laughs> Come back, Andrew. I didn't mean Andrew, it. Andrew, where'd you go? <laughs> so, needless to say, David has uh, pissed off Andrew with that question. <laughs> it was a very deeply personal question. Wait, David, yours says Best Day Brewing West Coast IPA. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm drinking Are today. you doing an IPA? I am drinking an IPA and- even for West Coast, I'd rather like it. So this is 
part of that non-alcoholic beer that I ordered. Oh, okay. That makes sense. The thing I don't typically don't like about West Coast IPAs is they just pile on way, way too many hops. But this is this actually holds it back. I actually had this before and it's delightful. Now, Andrew, what are you drinking? Oh, I've got my Oxford Starbucks mug and I'm just having a cup of coffee this morning. But speaking of ale, um, there is a 30-minute drive away, a proper British pub in Mount Dora, Florida called the Magical Meat Boutique. And uh, had there the other day a hand cask-drawn pint of Fuller's. And so, I'm scheduling all of my pastoral meetings there. (laughs) That's such a good idea. Yeah. Well, our toast this morning, um, last night I, uh, I got to meet a delightful listener from the Houston area, Paul Latino, and he just in the last, um, last year or so began reading Lewis. He found that audiobooks are his much preferred way of, uh, of reading. And so, once he did, he had that same Lewis experience where opened a Lewis book, read it, and then just fell into a huge hole and has, has read loads and loads of things. Um, and his family has a trip out to Disneyland this weekend. So, we were made able to, uh, to have dinner together and brought me a beautiful, a beautiful graphic icon that he made of the Blessed Virgin Mary consoling Eve. It was uh, just a testament to Lewis. Um, he walked in the door and we were instantly friends and fell to the right kind of chat as if we'd known each other for years. So, and it just reminded me of meeting on in, in Romania and so many of you in Colorado and, and elsewhere. And so, I wanted to toast uh, Paul Latino and on Caballero and, and so many of the other listeners who I have met in person. So many of these friends that I have in person because of Pints with Jack. So, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you and bless you today and all the days of your life. Cheers. 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 All right. So, let's talk about this letter collection. As Matt mentioned, it's rather hard to get through all of this because there are lots of different letters to different people, different ages, different subjects. So, as I was going through, I sort of grouped them into several different buckets, and we'll do a couple of buckets today and a couple of buckets in the next episode. So, the first bucket I'm calling Surprised by Jack. Hmm. And it's all the things that I noted while reading which surprised me in some way. Sometimes this was on my original reading, and some of them were even on this reread. It's a little miscellaneous, so I'm just literally going to go through my list, and you guys jump in when you've got something you want to say. So, the first thing that surprised me about this book is that although it's letters to children, some of these exchanges continue with the children through to adulthood. Mm. In one, he's actually even congratulating a girl on her engagement. And there are so many of these letters. I I did wonder, how on earth does Jack keep track of them all? And we actually see in one letter in 1962, he mentions an index that he'd been keeping with regards to this correspondent, such that he was able to say, we've been corresponding since 1954. And so, I was really curious, Andrew, have any of those indices survived, like a, a Rolodex of all the people he's talking to and you know, the little, little facts about them as, as he's gone through correspondence? Yeah, I, I don't believe any of that exists. Of course, if it did, people would have written about it, Walter would have made it uh, a part of the collected letters. And so, uh, Lewis famously just got rid of so much stuff. And then after he d- died, Warney got rid of a lot of paperwork. Even some original writings um, we understand from from Lewis, and so as far as I know, those indices don't exist. I do believe that Lewis had such things. So if you look at Lewis's uh, own books, oftentimes he'll have an index, a handwritten index in the back pages, and usually those indices are alphabetical. 
which makes me believe there's no way he could have written a beautiful alphabetical hmm. index while he was reading the book unless he jotted down themes and page numbers on a separate sheet of paper and then alphabetized them and transcribed them in. And so, somebody once told me uh, that when they were going to sell the kilns upstairs in the attic where they have a beautiful little model of the little end room now, there were just piles and piles of bills and correspondence and, you know, like official household business. And they just took all that stuff and chucked it. Um, and as the kind of Lewisian archaeologist, that would have filled in so many dates. Um, even even hearing him, you know, talk about having his cyst lanced or having been in a home for some treatment. There's so much that we don't know about Lewis and little hints of it come through this correspondence. But mm -hmm. like with many historical figures, much of the stuff really doesn't survive. And we're just kind of examining the scraps. Mm. Well. One other surprise as I read through, I had no idea that they ever had infants at the kilns. Mm -hmm. uh, one letter reveals that they had a six-week-old baby living with them during the evacuation from London during the Nazi bombings, which is mind-blowing. I mean, I, ass I assume in that case, the mother was with the child? Uh, yeah, not sure. I don't know that there's much evidence. Lewis in the letters often is just kind of general about having people. But the picture that you see at the beginning of the um, of the filmed version, the latest filmed version of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, loads of children being packed off to the countryside was and, – and I think that it was so frequent and the visits were short enough. Mm. Um, I don't know that there are really any records. Um, there are some accounts out there of people who stayed there, but I'm not sure. Six months, yeah, does seem a little bit young uh, mm -hmm. to be out on their own. Yeah, that's that's Lucy's age, my Lucy's age. The thought, thought of her being separated from her mother is just – Inconceivable. Heart-wrenching. Yeah. In these letters to children, we find out more about the animals of the kilns. There's a 1956 letter where he lists one dog, one cat, four geese, and umpteen hens. <laughs> and I also hadn't realized some of the silly names of the pets. Yes. In another letter, we find out that the dog is called Bruce, which is fine. Good dog name. But two cats called <laughs> Pushkin and Kitty Coo. <laughs> I'm sorry. C.S. Lewis never said Kitty Coo. No. I reject that. Come here, kitty coo. I'm, yeah, I'm sure that he did. <laughs> and then a cat called Mervin, right? The little orange cat called Mervin. There's also, although that wasn't at the kilns, this real affinity for mice. Um, mm -hmm. And he talks about the mice peeking out in his study. And so. Yeah, that's, that's quite adorable. We're going to talk about the mice next time under uh, the bucket that I've called Playful Lewis, because he really anthropomorphizes all of the animals in his life. It's quite wonderful. But back to surprises, um, and a gross one, Jack mentions that he pulled out one of his teeth with his fingers, and apparently more than once. <laughs> this just confirms yeah. he hated the dentist. <laughs> I mean, it's oh, like the fullness nice. of it. I'm not going. Go yeah, on. No, I'll do this myself. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, you know, boy, there's an essay waiting to be written. Right when his mother is dying... Um, one of the distresses he talks about in Surprise by Joy is that he was up late one night um, awake because he had toothache, mm -hmm. but his mother wouldn't come to him because she was dying of cancer. And so, yeah, I think tooth issues were were troubled uh, for Lewis. Mm -hmm. One of the things that surprises me in all of these letters, I didn't write it in the notes, but I did mention it, was the remarkable humility that Lewis shows towards the children. And he writes them back as if he's their pal. Mm. And he really lowers his tone to match the tone of the letter, you know, and even to say, I forget exactly where the phrasing is. You know, do you have a dog? We do. He's a brown one. 
you know, <laughs> and it's the kind of phrasing that a kid would use with, with another kid and to pitch the tone to the children. And very often, you know, he said, oh, your package came today. And so, he's writing to people, he's, he's answering these letters to children the same day that he receives them. And so, this kind of humble Lewis who would take it not only as a duty but a delight to kind of um, to, to reach out. I just, that's one of the things that I really love about him and about these letters. I put that too as well, the humility side. Everything you said, I second. In addition, the humility of his sign-offs, he really asks them all to pray for him. And it's and it's like yes. the perfect epitome of him expressing how we're supposed to treat children with respect. He thought an eight-year-old are praying for him was equally as important as an adult praying. Mm. And probably more, honestly, knowing Lewis. <laughs> and I remember one of them where I'll probably bring this up later. I don't know where I ended up putting this through the different categories, but one of them was he literally like asked a kid to pray for him in case he's ever done anything wrong. Like Lewis has done something mm -hmm. wrong with yeah, his writing yeah. or with- Lawrence Craig. Yeah, with, with maybe making Aslan like too much like Jesus. And right. if there is for some reason a concern there, Lord, just, you know, just let it, or pray for me that that's not the case. <laughs> These phrases you get in here, I'm so clumsy. I'm afraid if you had met me, you would find me very shy and dull. I am tall, fat, mostly bald, you know, I mean, he just- he, he doesn't seem to stand on ceremony and, no. and there's, yeah, just a great healthy dose of, of humility. And he also asks them simple questions after the fact of like, tell me more about this. What's the name of this? Right. Please do write and yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're going to be digging into some of those in more detail, particularly the, the Lawrence letter about Aslan. We'll be doing that next episode in the bucket that I've called Narnia Business. <laughs> so, another surprise was I knew Jack loved horses, but I didn't know that he didn't know how to ride. And that was something that Tolkien, mm. that's something he did in the war. He looked after, uh, mm. after the horses as well as being a communications officer. So that, that kind of surprised me. We recently learned that he bought the Gresham boys a pony. So you, you would have thought at some point, you thought, I'll have a go. And it's like, no, no. <laughs> it's like, I feel old. I get that. <laughs> well, and there's some real sympathy to horses. There's, you know, a strawberry in A Magician's Nephew. There's the horse and the great divorce. And then he's a huge fan of George MacDonald. And one of the books I'm rereading right now is uh, At the Back of the North Wind. And the lead character, Diamond, is actually named after his father's horse, Diamond. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, horsiness is, uh, is a big part of some of his love. Mm -hmm. What else, David? Well, we find out in a 1955 letter that, quote, a little old man would bring Lewis his breakfast every morning. I've seen this sort of thing in movies, but... Is that a particular perk of Cambridge? It's actually not necessarily just Cambridge. In Cambridge, uh, they had servants who would bring breakfast, wake people up, do up their rooms um, in the morning. They were called bedders, B-E-D-D-E-R in Cambridge. And in Oxford, they were called scouts. And so, a scout would sometimes bring Lewis a cup of tea and some biscuits. And it was one of the perks to being a, a teacher. And actually, a lot of the students, the undergraduates had scouts as well. It began, uh, students were hiring their own and then it just became part of the perk at the mm -hmm. university. They were usually men and they were usually over 50. And I did my little, little bit of background research. I found uh, what they called a, a better test. 
and they tried to make um, make sure that they selected people for the job who were unattractive to undergraduates. So there would be no hanky panky. <laughs> so, I certainly would have passed the better test. <laughs> if Lewis has taught us one thing, it's that we need to distinguish because he actually even writes that we must distinguish between good, better, and best. Oh. <laughs> Wow. Wow. wow, wow, nice. wow, 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 wow. <laughs> David's in rare form this morning, folks. <laughs> yes, you guys missed all the pre-recording. <laughs> he had yeah. some real good ones pre-recording. Yes, he did. I was almost going to tell him the one that you had that was really great. Andrew figured out that my mother is turning 60. She doesn't listen to this, so she won't care. <laughs> That's what she gets for not listening to this. <laughs> um, she does not support her son and buys a jack now. And Andrew's like, so your mom's only two years older than me. Realizing I could be Andrew's son. And David goes- I didn't make that jump. Somebody else did. <laughs> and, and David goes, you dodged a bullet. And I was like, ouch. And he goes- No, I said, that's a bullet dodged. That's oh, a bullet dodged. I didn't address it to anyone in yes. particular. I'm just saying that was a bullet and dodged. And I was like, ouch. And he goes, I didn't say who. <laughs> I was like, ooh, well played. I like it. Well, moving on though, back to this, I was a little surprised by this next one. It was fun to kind of see, and I'm going to put on my David Batesian hat in our common room, guys. David talked all about the Islamic faith in the Quran, and it was beautiful. And so I decided to share my knowledge of Zoroastrianism uh, mm -hmm. that I have deeply learned over the years through a quick five-minute research on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote to a correspondent, a young correspondent, Zoroastrianism is one of the finest of the pagan religions. Do you depend entirely on Nietzsche for your idea of it? I expect you would find it worth, well worth time to look at the old sources. So first of all, he knew something about this rationalism. Mm -hmm. Second, I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that how old is this child that's sending him something about Zoroastrianism? Um, <laughs> hopefully this is when they're more like 16 or 18. That's just unbelievably impressive. But just a little background there. I did not know this. So it's an Iranian religion, one of the oldest organized religions dualistic cosmology, good and evil, monotheistic sort of in terms of a deity, a deity of wisdom and it conquers evil, belief in free will, judgment after death, heaven, hell, angels, demons. And it's very thought to have influenced other religions after and some possible roots dating back to the second millennium BCE, but really it's it's kind of between that 1000 to 750 BCE. It started to decline after like 700 BCE. So this is well before, this is almost like the same period we've had since Christ, but before Christ. And so anyways, there's a little bit on Zoroastrianism. <laughs> so we had the Quran in the common room and Zoroastrianism here. And uh, <laughs> next time I'll tell you about Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> there actually is a connection between Zoroastrianism and uh, the Quran because it is alluded to, and in the other Islamic sources, they often call them fire worshippers because a lot of Zoroastrian liturgy revolved around fire. And do you know probably one of the most famous Zoroastrians? He was English. Rabidash? <laughs> uh, he wrote Bohemian Rhapsody. No, Freddie Mercury, of course. Mm -hmm. He was from that part of the country, yeah. part of the world. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure how practicing he was, but- <laughs> I want to place a plug here to probably David will actually probably answer this off the top of his head, but at some point there'll be an after hours from Dr. Louis Marcos and myself on Plato, Christianity, and C.S. Lewis. It was interesting reading this because Plato really set the stage for some thought for Christianity prior to obviously mm -hmm. revelation of Christ. But it's interesting here as I'm reading this, this also set some of the stage to some degree. Like 
I think one interesting takeaway I had from that is you could pre-revelation of Christ, you could still reason your way to a sort of dualistic Christian type worldview, heaven and hell. And so I just thought that was kind of intriguing. And I was, one thing we dived into discussion of was, do you think like this was God setting the groundwork directly in inspiring some of these individuals or this was just naturally you know, the reason in everyone? I, I wish Lewis had written a novel yeah. where he mm. addressed all of that. <laughs> <laughs> is this The Abolition of Man? I haven't read that yet. No, this is Till We Have Faces. Uh, Abolition <laughs> of Man is not a novel. <laughs> he talked about what Christ might look like in a pre-Christian, you know, pre-Christ um, pagan culture where there are some glimmers towards the God's true nature. And that's what you see. And Lewis looks at paganism. Pagan is not – so, sorry, just to define and describe. Paganism as it's used in the South means somebody has bad behavior on Saturday night. That boy was out till all hours. He's just a pagan. <laughs> but what pagan means is a worshiper of many gods. That's the same – it means the same thing as a heathen or a polytheist. Now, I know colloquially in our language, it's more about somebody's behavior. But Lewis embraced paganism and saw in paganism elements of the Christian story, elements that foretold the Christian story. And of course, that's a huge part of the conversation with Tolkien and what they're doing. And so, paganism for Lewis wasn't anti-Christian as so much as it was pre-Christian. And in a pagan culture, you know about sacrifice, you know about worship, you know about forces mm. outside of yourself. And so, there are so many elements of paganism that are concurrent with, that are similar to Christianity. And that's because even in the pagan cultures, God is always reaching out to people and they want, he wants them to follow the light that they have. So, um, yeah, I think that that's part of what's going on, especially with him. And isn't this, this is why Chesterton said if he wasn't a Christian, he'd be a pagan. And effectively, I believe he also said, with 90% certainty, Christianity saved paganism from itself. Mm -hmm. Paganism had so much right, it just didn't understand the limits, the boundaries, where to go, the means, the ends, where these things are pointing to. But there was a lot of goodness that was in that, in the thought of it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I remember when I first read that, I was like, huh, usually you'd think, well, if I wasn't Christian, would I be Islamic? Would I be Hindu? Would I be, you know, would you be one of these other ones? He's like, no, I'd be pagan. I was like, huh, all right. Well, I think that it's it's a rough analogy, but I think that we can look at Christ as not only fulfilling the, the law, mm -hmm. fulfilling Judaism, but also fulfilling paganism, right? And that's some of what Lewis alludes to in Myth Became Fact. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Well, I've just got just a few more surprises that jumped out at me as I was reading the book. This one might not actually be a surprise, but Lewis complains about the Christmas rush even to children. <laughs> he can't contain himself. Uh, and if you'd like to know a little bit more about that, I spoke about Lewis's dislike for the commercial Christmas, what he called the rush, the Christmas rush, uh, in a couple of recent bonus episodes, one with Law Haven and one with the C.S. Lewis podcast. Mm. Well, and part of that is, you know, if Lewis is talking about something in an essay, he's often talking about it in his letters and sometimes even in his books. And so, when I looked at that letter, it's right around the time that Lewis writes some of his anti-Xmas essays. Mm. <laughs> one surprise, and this will sort of come up in various guises in other buckets, but just the way Lewis communicates to the children insofar as he doesn't shy away from difficult subjects. Mm -hmm. To one, he writes, Last year I married at her bedside in hospital, a woman who seemed to be dying. So you can imagine it was a sad wedding. 
But Aslan has done great things for us, and she is now walking about again, showing the doctors how wrong they were and making me very happy. Hmm. So he's still willing to talk about the sadness of their wedding, even though it's countered by the joy, pun intended, that comes afterwards. (laughs) But obviously, Joy eventually succumbs to cancer. And in a very touching letter to his goddaughter, Sarah, he writes this. She had just become engaged. And so he he responds saying, I couldn't come to the wedding, my dear. I haven't the pluck. Mm. Any wedding, for the reason you know, would turn me inside out. Mm. I sent a little present. But I love that love that phrase. It would turn me inside out. Anyone who's grieved immediately knows that what that feeling feels yeah, like. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's another piece too that um and these letters really helped me see it. I've been working, of course, a lot in the chronology. And the first thing I really worked on was the chronology of Lewis's conversion. But as I've looked more carefully at it in a larger sense, conversion is an ongoing process with Lewis. Yes, there were certain dates at which he knelt or which he believed on his way to the zoo or when he got to the zoo. In the same way, Lewis marries Joy Davidman in the registry office and then tells even Arthur Greaves, oh, it doesn't mean anything. But they increasingly spend time together and before he marries her at her bedside, he talks about her being his wife and moving her into the kilns and she's demanding her rights. And so, I think that it's wrong to think of that initial marriage as just this sterile extension of his citizenship. I think that the marriage is a step in the progression of their increasing intimacy And he's calling her his wife even before the bedside religious ceremony. And so, again, it's kind of this arc of relationship rather than, you know, we fixate so much sometimes on the the dates. Um, And he's growing closer and closer to her and she's filling him with joy. And that's the pun intended. Um, That's one of the great things about uh, reading his letters about her. He's so ridiculously happy. Mm -hmm. Some of the critics are, you know, think that that she duped him or she came and, you know, was a gold digger and and convinced him to care for her because she was dying. And that doesn't, there's no evidence of that at all. He seems really delighted to um, to have her and her boys. Well, I've got one last little surprise uh, and it was like Matt, Lewis can't grow a beard. <laughs> In one letter, he writes, I had chicken pox long after I was grown up and it's much worse if you're a man, for of course, you can't shave with the spots on your face. I would just add, everything's worse if you're a man, like the cold. You know, there's a cold and there's a man cold. Far worse. Everyone needs to uh, recognize that, including the medical institutions. But anyway, <laughs> he says, uh, if you're a man, because you can't shave the spots on your face. So I grew a beard and though my hair is black, the beard was half yellow and half red. You should have seen me. Mm. Matt, there's your AI uh, challenge. You need to come up with a picture of Lewis with a beard that's – um, and what I, I think what he means by half yellow and half red is not like one half was yellow and one half was red. I think that the yellow was him aging. You know, because redhead's hair turns lighter and lighter as they grow older. Not that I would know. Mm. I've married a redhead, but she's certainly <laughs> never nearly old enough. But yeah, Matt, go ahead and, and make a an AI image with the yellow closest to the face and the red, you know, further out. I like that. Yeah. If you need a model for a healthy beard, I'm happy to send you a still. <laughs> <laughs> I finally come to peace. I've always been so jealous of beard. I'm going to be 100% honest. I've always wanted one. The scruff look. And then my dad and even a few others are like, at this stage, be thankful you don't have to shave every day. And I'm like, I guess I'm trying to look at some sort of win. I just would love that scruff look. And it's just, I always had held out hope in my 30s it would come. Well, we're in my 30s. It hasn't come. So, I don't really know when it will. (laughs) Well, my dad couldn't grow a proper beard until I would say he was at least 
50. Mm. His oh, wow. was always very patchy. And then he went away for one business trip, forgot a razor and let it grow and came out with a lovely beard. So mm. I don't know. There's still hope for you yet, but I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't wish that. <laughs> Well, anyway, we have now graduated from uh, the uh, Surprise by Jack bucket, and we now get into what I'm calling USA is OK. And this contains all of the things related to my adopted country, the United States of America. Mm. The main thing that surprised me in the letter, this could have gone in that section as well, was that Lewis was willing to speak American uh, when writing to American children, such as referring to autumn as fall, mm -hmm. although he did educate them on what the proper term was, of course, as well. <laughs> You know, I know I occasionally have to use crass Americanisms here in order to be understood and not have to repeat myself, uh, but I just didn't think Jack would bend on that. Mm. But I, it probably shows the sheer volume of American children that were writing to him, not to mm. mention the influence of Joy Davidman. Maybe he doesn't have Jacksian rigidity. Oh, oh no, he's got Jacksian, uh, <laughs> Jacksian generosity and he's hearing. Ja <laughs> and I think that it is an act of humility and frankly, hospitality and love to speak in the tone that the hearer can hear. And yeah, surely, um, I mean, I don't know what Joy's voice sounds like. I don't think there are any recordings. There's a movie of her getting married to her first husband, but I don't think we have a recording of her voice. But I wonder if it isn't a little bit New York twangy. And I wonder if her sons were maybe somewhat that way, although Doug's accent sounds more like kind of a muffled Oxonian accent. Uh, to me. But yeah, I think that he probably had a lot of Americanisms in the house and and they probably enjoyed many a glass of water. <laughs> Never. Water. <laughs> Nothing but water served in that house. It's actually funny at the moment we're having a little bit of a battle over Alexander because sometimes he'll call it water with a nice hard tea. Uh -huh. And other times it's water. It's like, ugh. Actually, I'll, I'll put in the show notes as a very funny video of Emily Blunt. That's the name of John Krasinski's wife. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, she's the, the one that was Mary Poppins. There's a wonderful interview where she's talking about talking to her children and them because they've lived in both the UK and the yes. US and the accents yes. are changing. And uh, at one point, her daughter says, can I have a glass of water? And she says, oh, no, darling, darling, it's water. And she just looks at her and goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that was the video um, that made me aware of, the, of that particular distinction. Well, I'm not sure if it's an American influence or not, but another thing I noted is that Lewis definitely doesn't like the word kids mm -hmm. and he rails against it for a while. But it's kind of funny because in a subsequent letter, he discovers himself that he'd actually used the word far more than he thought in his own books. So Lewis is often credited with an amazing memory, but uh, we see a couple of lapses here, which I think is allowable. Well, and actually his memory about his own books is not nearly as good. Mm. You know, we see that later with uh, the reference to Rabidash, but he didn't consider his own work nearly as, as um, thoughtfully and carefully, thoroughly as he did um, other people's works. Mm. Now, one of the girls that he writes to in America is a girl named Kathy. And she grew up to be Kathy Keller. Mm -hmm. And she actually came on Pants of Jack to talk about her correspondence with Lewis. If you want to check that out, that's season five, episode 24. But speaking of American girls, in a letter to his goddaughter, Sarah, Jack mentioned that at the kilns, they had had a visitor for three weeks. He describes this visitor as a very nice one, but one can't quite feel free. <laughs> <laughs> He's a lot kinder in his letter to Joy Davidman. <laughs> that letter is the future co-author of Till We Have Faces. So maybe she was pushy. 
<laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Um, this is not he, if you actually read his letter to his godson, Lawrence Harwood, um, on the 19th of December, 52, he's like, I'm completely circumvented by American guest invited for one week and staying for three. She talks from morning till night. You know, I feel <laughs> slightly concussed. He actually, in order to write that letter, he trudges through a snowstorm two and a half miles from his house to Maudlin to complain about her. So, yeah, um, <laughs> that at the end of her first visit in 52 to England, um, she, I think, is a little pushy. I think that she may have even made a pass at him. But then around this time, she gets a four-page letter from her soon-to-be ex-husband saying, oh, by the way, I've fallen in love with your cousin and we're going to get divorced and and Renee and I are going to get married and I hope you find some swell chap, you know. And so, Jeez. I think that even at the end of his frustration, he begins to feel some pity for her and that pity and charity grows into um, all of the other loves with her. And obviously, after meeting Joy, he meets her sons and- in Letters to Children, we get a description of the Gresham boys as being very nice. They seem to use much longer words than English boys of that age would. Hmm. I would say that's probably because when both of your parents are authors, that's just going to happen. Yes. But he says, but they haven't as good table manners as English boys of the same sort would. I wonder how how Doug felt when he first read that collection. It was like, oh, I was fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but you actually find uh, there are some accounts, um, I think it's in Lenten Lands. Yeah, I'm not sure. But Doug talks about dropping his American accent and I think maybe by extension, a lot of his Americanisms and American habits once he goes to British boarding school because he was, you know, tortured endlessly for being a foreigner. And so, um, I think that he probably fell in with, um, with what he was seeing. And this is fairly early on in, in their stay in America. So. Mm. And, and I do think that is in Lantern Lands. And as for whether it changed, does anyone remember watching him eat at the conference, Matt? No. <laughs> Should have just gone over and just watched him and said, what are you doing? It's like research. <laughs> Did you actually see him? Are you saying that because you, you it was like actually noticeable the way I'm not going to say whether no no I, I'm I don't think he actually ate with uh, the hoi polloi I was really hoping you saw him and he was just like <laughs> <laughs> it's like Jack was right well in this book there's also a link to our previous book Letters to an American Lady because Mary Willis Shelburne she encouraged the children of the Kilmer family to write to Lewis and Matt and I have both met a descendant of that family Meg Hunter Kilmer who's a wonderful evangelist and author. I will make sure there's links in the show notes. Relic, third degree relic of Lewis? Kind of. Kind of, yeah. Fourth degree. Yeah. <laughs> but what's funny on that score is that later in his correspondence to the Kilmer family, we have another example of Lewis not remembering something. He forgets that they know Mary. And so he writes to them asking for their assistance with her. And given the time he spent on Letters to American Lady, I just want to read this. An appeal for your charity. Living near you is a lonely and sometimes disagreeable woman with whom I have corresponded for many years. She is a Roman Catholic. I have done and am doing what I can for her with advice and a little money, but a little help and friendship from co-religionists on the spot is badly needed. And this is the bit that I love. Could you or anyone in your circle, perhaps a really nice nun, get in touch with her and lend a hand? <laughs> I love how he calls her disagreeable <laughs> or slightly. And in the letters to children, he talks about um, how one of the children draws a better donkey, I think, than Pauline Baines. Mm -hmm. And so, surely there's no no thought at all that um, that these letters would be would be published. And you know, I hope that they didn't come out until that. Well, actually, no. I'm sure Pauline Baines read that. 
because she died after 2000. Ouch. Didn't shortly right after this, the next letter say that he realized this was the person that like he, he already mm-hmm. was working with her or something? He realizes that it was her who introduced him to the Kilmers. Yeah. Mm, and he said, yeah. you guys are doing everything you can. Sorry, ignore me. But there is actually another crossover with Letters to an American Lady in that here he says something nearly identical that he writes to Mary. He talks about his surgical belt saying, it's like your grandmother's corset. It gives me a wonderful schoolboy figure. Lewis also wasn't a fan of the Christian Herald. I believe this is an American publication, the Christian Herald. Uh, Lewis wasn't a fan. He actually writes to one of the Kilmer boys uh, saying that following the publication of his essay, Will We Lose God in Outer Space? (laughs) It's kind of brutal. He says, yes, the Christian Herald is pretty frightful. And so apparently are its readers. I have the stupidest letters about that article. (laughs) The Christian Herald was an American weekly newspaper reporting on topics relevant to evangelical Christianity, according to Wikipedia, with an emphasis on engaging with humanitarian causes at home and abroad. Well, I've got one last entry for this section, and it's in a letter from August 11th, 1959, where Jack criticizes the American school system, specifically the idea of giving attendance credit. I've got to say, I I was horrified when I realized that this was a thing. He writes, what a droll idea in Florida to give credits, not for what you know, but for hours spent in the classroom. Rather like judging (laughs) the condition of an animal, not by its weight or shape, but by the amount of food that has been offered it. (laughs) I completely agree with this. As someone who skipped half my classes in college. No, see, actually, I think for you, an attendance credit would have been a good thing. You, would have actually, you might have actually known what happened at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia years ago if that had happened. I, 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 I'm actually going to completely reject what I just said. No, I'm in favor of attendance credits. In, in fairness, in fairness. So here was my, my view was just, um, I wanted to make sure, I mean, I did very, very well in college. I wanted to make sure I understood the materials and stuff, but if like the teacher was really boring I would just read the material myself, self-teach myself. I didn't think they were a great teacher. I was very good at just self-teaching. But like the Lewis and Ferris, the Lewis course, I did go to every day because it was super interesting. And same with the Chesterton one, or at least I think I did. Some teachers just literally regurgitate the materials of the book to you. And I'm like, what am I doing in here? You're just regurgitating it. Part of my perspective as a former college teacher is that the standard employed is um, three quarters of the learning should be done outside of the classroom. And Mm -hmm. so, I wouldn't regurgitate the material. I would assume that they have read it and known it well. I played around as a high school teacher with participation credits, but it was really almost impossible to find a fair way to do that and to motivate students to participate. Um, I started them at 60 and then they had to earn their way up. I started them at 100 and I knocked them down. Nothing worked. And so, the way that I handled it was I would just give a reading quiz every day of the class. And reading quizzes were an important part of the grade and you had to be there and yet in order to take the quiz. And so, yeah, this whole participation thing, but the British system of, well, and even the Oxford system that Lewis studied under and taught in was you learn for three years and then at the Mm -hmm. end of the three years for four days, you write everything that you've learned. And it's real easy, really easy to see how much you've learned and put the onus on the student. Yeah, that's why I love the British system. And I would definitely distinguish high school versus college. Let's let that clear too. I love the British system. It was you'd meet with your tutor, but you didn't have to go to a single one of the lectures. Um, you had to go to your tutorial once a week for each of them. You usually had two, they were an hour and a half, but like there's like these communal lectures that any student from economics in any of the 30 something colleges come to and it's like a 200 person auditorium. 
it's just covering the core material. If you learn better that way, great. But so much of it is like 40 hours a week of self-reading. And then you mm-hmm. write your essay, you meet with your tutor. I love that. I'm like, we're adults paying a lot of money to be here. And if we're not self-motivated, I mean, I don't think it's the teacher's responsibility to keep us. And I, I like the way you said it, Andrew. I would always go to ones where they were adding a ton of value. So if it was like 25% was new stuff in there. It was super interesting. I, I mean, I didn't want to skip for the sake of skipping. I only skip if I can read this. <laughs> Yeah, well, and classical education, I think, is um, is still similar. And and the idea of lectures as being a place where you go to hear a worldwide expert talk about their their subject, and then to have discussion classes where you had questions and you know could grapple with things, and then you had a writing component where you had to you know show what you've learned by what you can write. Yeah, now that you say that, I remember one of my favorite ones. I was taking a course of developing economies. And Paul Collier, who wrote the book, The Bottom Billion, I loved going to his lectures because it was just so fascinating to hear some of his real world experiences of this gentleman that's been used by the IMF and the World Bank to, <laughs> to like have these things. The weekend that they put the memorial stone at Westminster Abbey for Lewis. Uh, and in fact, the morning I met Rowan Williams at Cambridge, at Modlin College, Cambridge. There was a former student of Lewis's in the audience. And during the Q&A session, he said the most British thing I've ever heard. And he said, yes, Lewis's lectures, right? Well, one went to them. <laughs> you know, And it was like, these were not to be missed. Well, let's turn to our final bucket of today, which I'm just calling spiritual advice. Hmm. And my favorite piece of advice comes from a letter to his goddaughter, Sarah in anticipating of her receiving the Sacrament of Confirmation and her First Holy Communion. And just for a little bit of context for people that don't go to sacramental churches, Sacrament of Confirmation is the laying on of hands by the bishop, anointing with oil. And First Holy Communion is the first time somebody is going to receive Holy Communion, first time they're going to receive the Eucharist. Because the order of reception of the sacraments like this, there have been variations throughout church history and within different ecclesiastical bodies. And let me see if I can put it in evangelical terms. Where uh, a lot of folks will delay baptism until they can make an adult profession of faith, where they reach an age of accountability. Confirmation serves as that same sort of thing. Once somebody is 13 or so, they are confirmed in the faith, having made an adult commitment to the promises that were made on their behalf in their baptism. And so, it's not that dissimilar. Although I would add that isn't historically what confirmation has been. Historically, it was joined directly with baptism and they were done together. But over time, the sacraments were spread out and sometimes even changed orders. So, it, it does. It has functions, something like a bar mitzvah for Christians. Sure. What I learned this week is that um, our bishop is coming this week and there's going to be some baptisms. And if the bishop performs the baptism, it also serves as confirmation confirmation in our church. Yeah, interesting. So, fascinating. Well, anyway, this letter about her confirmation and First Holy Communion. First of all, I just want to note that Lewis shows some real prudence because he includes a cover letter to Sarah's mother and he concedes to whatever judgment she deems, whether or not she thinks the advice that he's about to give her is good. Uh, he writes, I thought you'd better vet it before passing it on. I'm so clumsy. Mm. Uh, I think that's generally a, generally a good idea if you're doing anything with children. Check with their parents first, please. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then in the letter itself, he apologizes that he's not going to be able to make the confirmation. And we find out that it's because he's having to take care of Mrs. Moore. Mm-hmm. He writes, blessings on all three. And I'm sorry I can't come, but I'd only have behaved like an ass if I had. I am very tempted to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But Jack is his usual delightful self. Uh, he writes this, as regards to being your fairy godfather, 
because he is her godfather. Uh, I enclose a bit of the only kind of magic, a very dull kind, which I can work. I think it will mean one or two or even five pounds for you now to get things you want and the rest in the bank for future use. It is the best an old bachelor can think of, and it is with my love. Mm. I am stealing that word for word at some point. I'm just just announcing that. Except for bachelor. Well, true, true. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get to the, the two pieces of advice that he gives. I just think these are wonderful. Oh, I did too. Oh, yes. So regarding confirmation, he says, don't expect, I mean, don't count on and don't demand that when you are confirmed or when you make your first communion, you'll have all the feelings you would like to have. You may, of course, but also you may not. But don't worry if you don't get them. They aren't what matter. The things that are happening to you are quite real things, whether you feel as you wish or not. Just as a meal will do a hungry person good, even if he has a cold in his head, which will rather spoil the taste. Our Lord will give us right feelings if he wishes, and then we must say thank you. If he doesn't, then we must say to ourselves and him, that he knows best. I want us to go on. This, by the way, is one of the very few subjects on which I feel I do know something. For years after I had become a regular communicant, listeners, this means um, taking communion every week, I can't tell you how my how dull my feelings were and how my attention wandered at the most important moments. It is <laughs> only in the last year or two that things have begun to come right, which just shows how important it is to keep on doing what you are told. And I wish I could say as a priest that that isn't true of me as well, how my attention wandered at the most important moments. I hope that that's not true, but there are some times that I'm thinking about the next piece of the service and I flub the very thing that I'm there to do. But that Lewis felt the same way is a great encouragement to me. Yeah. Matt, how many times have you gone up to communion and you hear body of Christ and your first thought is, huh? What? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, there have been more times I'd like to admit. This one really stuck out to me as well. We've heard the feelings part before and some of the stuff we've talked about. And so, but I like that already, but I really like the second comment about real things are happening. I think there's a really beautiful reminder there. He said this in different ways before of like, sometimes the prayers that are hardest to do and showing up can sometimes have the most meaning. But I really liked this because there are times when I have zero desire to go to mass and participate in a sacramental life. Mm -hmm. I think it's a temptation from Satan to, to be like, well, now it's just not going to mean as much. In reality, showing up, this is an excuse for not trying to place yourself into a proper dispensation and trying to like prepare yourself for it. I mean, we definitely want to do that. But even if you've done those things and you really are fighting an inner battle to show up, real things are happening. In fact, if I'm so bold, you can almost say maybe a little more is happening because you fought the good fight and showed up despite every inkling not to. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't feel like you're as present because there's so much on your mind. The Lord is honoring that. And so I just really like that quote unquote when he put real things. Like we are partaking in the divine life. We're receiving the divine life and something is happening to us. Don't doubt that. And that something is not a feeling. It's a true transformation, an interior transformation. Um, and so I just, I love this one. It's not only a feeling. And it's not always a feeling. The feeling absolutely can and should come. And is lovely when it does. <laughs> but also, it's the actual thing. And, you know, he says in here, and I'm going to paraphrase it badly because he says that elsewhere, that sometimes it's hard for me to believe that there's actually a God or that there's anything that happens after we die. 
But when I was a when I was an unbeliever, sometimes it was very hard not to believe that there was something that happened when we died. And so, if I feel unattracted to or unmoved by the Holy Sacrament or going to church, but I still am doing it, what I'm doing is agreeing with my mind mm. and perhaps my spirit, what my body and my emotions don't feel. And of course, it shouldn't always feel like that because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And that work has not been completed. St. Paul says we are being changed from one degree of glory to another. And if my feelings don't correspond with the most important spiritual realities, that just shows that I've got a ways to go and good thing that I'm I'm here and actually showing up to do the things that my feelings don't, don't correspond with, but that I know are true. That can be actually one of the steps that actually makes those feelings to come and all the rest of it really to come together. Hmm. The second piece of advice is just as good. He writes, remember that there are only three kinds of things anyone need ever do. Yes. Number one, things we ought to do. Number two, things we've got to do. Number three, things we like doing. Mm -hmm. I say this because some people seem to spend so much of their time doing things for none of the three reasons. Things like reading books they don't like because other people read them. Mm. I mean, really, that comes down to two things here, if we want to put this in a really psychological, secular sense. Mimetic desire and cheap dopamine-driven activities. Like the infinite scroll or any sort of phone activity, honestly, is just a cheap dopamine activity. That's not really bringing life-giving in nine out of ten circumstances. And mimetic desire, doing something because the world has told us it's a desirable thing to do. It's been fun knowing those concepts because it, I can honestly see how much that drives my life still. I really try to fight it, hmm. but it's unfortunate. At the end of the day, sometimes I just get addicted to the idea of just watching a TV show or something. And it's like, man, just just read that book. That really would be so much more. Because every time I make the choice, I'm like, man, that was such a good evening. Uh, listeners, please note, Matt Andrew is currently on his phone. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm on my phone to read screw tape. As one of my patients said, so he was there for he was there for genuine reasons. I thought he was actually making a funny joke. <laughs> this is one of the one out of ten that where it's legitimate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, as one of my patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong and nothing is very strong. And that was something that came up in Letters to American Lady as well, when he said, mm -hmm. did that thing really need doing? I'm, I'm not convinced that it did. And one thing I also like about this piece of advice is the third thing. He says the things we should do are things we like doing. Because there is a sort of false piety that can sometimes think, if I'm enjoying something, well, it's got to be sinful. There's actually a letter from 1957 where he pushes back on the idea of giving up fun for no reason except you think it's good to give it up. He says, he oh. says that's all nonsense. So, uh, are you suggesting that maybe one of the things that we give up for Lent is uh, giving up doing the things that we feel like we ought for the sake of religious duty and we should – one of the practices we should add is doing the things that we really like? Mm -hmm. Screw taping examples include going for a walk, having a cup of tea or reading a book you really enjoy. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a great statement, Andrew. I'd probably thread the needle of – I think we should 
we should do what we ought, if not because religion does, but because we actually think we're supposed to give it up if we ought to. But I love the idea of layering in twofold, give something up that we ought to, because genuinely it could be a good thing. But then doing that third point, adding something that we like doing that for some reason we don't do it for guilt or for like, like if we really wish we were reading more in the evenings, um, you know, just force yourself to say, I'm going to start doing this. I give myself permission to do this for 30 hmm. minutes every single day for Lent. Yeah. I like that blend, Andrew. I've got a handful more uh, little bits that I wanted to read out. This one wasn't as so much spiritual, more of like good philosophy, although it obviously has spiritual applications. He says, beware of the maths master who overmarks the work. Mm. So the person that teaches you, teaches you mathematics. He says, generous marking is nice for the moment, but it can lead to disappointments when later one comes up against the real thing. Mm. So that, that's, some, that's some good advice with some very strong implications of, uh, to the spiritual life. Yeah, the great inflation. And, you know, to, and that's part of what you do at Lent. I mean, it's a time of you know, careful self-reflection and saying, how well am I actually doing? Right. Mm -hmm. Now, let me just be honest with it. I think the first thing to do about that, at least from my perspective, is to get a really good sense of what the Old Testament talks about all, all throughout. The mercies of the Lord never cease. His steadfast love is there. And within the context of that steadfast love, to write out, to journal out, to think out, to pray out and say, Lord, where am I falling short? Where am I doing well? Please guide me without being either, you know, overly modest or, you know, falsely modest or without being proud. What am I doing well and where could I improve? But bookending that with the steadfast love of God. God doesn't need our performance. He just wants us and he wants us to love him. And so within that context, how can I live into that love and then share it abroad with others better? Like maybe that's a good way to, you know, to turn from what we need to turn from. There's something I've noticed was reading all the letters to Lewis. He was not afraid to tell someone honest, critical feedback, which is honestly a lost skill in art today. And I was thinking near the end of these letters when he's telling about the poetry. Oh, you know, this one wasn't so great. <laughs> or this one could use some work. Oh, ooh, you rushed over. And it's kind of here. He He's not overly generous. He's very direct with reality. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. Obviously, there's something spiritually beautiful about that, prepping someone to understand they're not perfect and being presented with it. But then- just in the practical sense, being presented with reality right away so you can adapt and adjust and understand, and then you can become better later. Mm -hmm. He's really good at that. Today, I feel like some of his language would be off-putting to people, but he's just direct. Ooh, no. <laughs> be a bit mean. <laughs> but he's also a professional critic of poetry. And so, to treat these children as if their poetry merited his full-on criticism. And he goes to great lengths and he makes up his own poem sometimes to show them how they've gone wrong or how, the, how it can be improved. Or here's this great line, could you do a bit more of that? That's the kind of thing that you're getting in the Inklings. You know, he does this sort of thing with Tolkien and Williams and others all the time. And so, to treat children, again, the humility to treat children that way, uh, I think is a real gift. But I'm going to offer you both some criticism right now. This is a different bucket. We will talk about his literary <laughs> advice next episode. So, returning to his sometimes rather blunt spiritual advice, <laughs> one child had clearly said that uh, everything Lewis needed is in his soul. And so, a letter from April 1959, he says, everything I need is in my soul. The heck it is. And I love the way he capitalizes <laughs> heck. So, it's apparently mm -hmm. not as bad as hell, but you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's a bit, a bit like hell. Um, he says, the heck it is. Or if so, it must contain a great many virtues and a great deal of wisdom, which neither I nor anyone else could ever find there. 
<laughs> That's great. It's honestly a good testament to the need for it's like we do have a lot in our conscious that's naturally placed within us in truth and we have a, an ability to reason, but revelation was important still to understanding wisdom. Um, and there's sort of a role for tradition too for helping understand wisdom. Some of the stuff to test things against. It's kind of indirectly what's being said here. And the reason we receive the sacraments is because we're receiving something we don't have, Ooh, <laughs> but which we very much need. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, you know, again, we're defining and describing. And I think that there's so much in the soul that we do need. And even if, you know, the sense of I've got everything I need in my soul, well, maybe what it is in my soul that I need is a sense of the lack of those things that I need to have in order to get to heaven. You know, so it's away from self-satisfaction, but pointing us to the kinds of things that we that we in fact need. Mm -hmm. As Paul writes to Timothy about fanning into flame the gift that you've received. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Jack spoke to Hugh Kilmer uh, about a whole load of very dense theological issues. I, I didn't sit down <laughs> and do the calculation to work out how old this kid was, but they're dealing with Calvinism, Catholicism, about the question of timelessness with God and mm. the souls in heaven. Do they enter a strictly timeless state? It's quite incredible some of the things that these two had spoken about. And you see Lewis um, having relationships with these with these children over the years as they grow up and treating them according to the, the age at which they are which is, I think, humble and takes some skill and also gives them the compliment of answering the question that's asked, mm -hmm. you know, and so he's willing to, to take that all on with him. He has uh, one wonderful little take on St. Paul's description of the church as the body of Christ. He writes in, in 1961, this is an extension of what St. Paul says about the body and the members. A good toenail is not an unsuccessful attempt at a hair. <laughs> and if it were conscious, it would delight in being simply a good toenail. <laughs> mm. You know, and I'd add the following to this. He says here too, a creature can never be a perfect being, but may be a perfect creature. I think I like this from a number of different ways, but maybe just the more day to day. I remember this is a much more deeply theological point, but <laughs> the looser one. So I remember what someone once said, when we die, Jesus isn't going to say, Matt, why weren't you Mother Teresa? Or why weren't you this saint or that saint? They're going to say, why weren't you Matt Bush? Mm -hmm. Like God has a plan for our lives and just like authentically loving and knowing that we are worthy of a, a role in this kingdom. And it's a beautiful role. And it's a role that God has created and divinely blessed. And we can only be perfectly ourselves. Now, it's hard to figure out what that is. <laughs> you know, false self-truths of the world kind of tells us all these other things and, and warps our desires and stuff. But the more we authentically get to that, and that's the end of mere Christianity where it's like, seek Christ and he will give you your authentic self. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know Andrew wants to say something. Matt, go ahead and, and start your recording. That's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, seriously. And and I think that it, uh, I think seen from the outside, all of this attention on Lewis by people who don't really share our affection for him leads people to think that we worship him or whatever. But I think that part of what I love about Lewis is that he turns me from himself to better things right? It's the whole point of the great divorce to turn from a good thing to a better thing, mm. right? You can't get there unless you love something more than your ability to paint. <laughs> yeah. Put that down. Put that down. <laughs> yes. Yes. It starts in, of course, great divorce, but it's fully encapsulated because Orwall is not true to herself. And when she really is true to herself, she finds out that she is accepted by love. 
it's there in both of the books because it's there all throughout Lewis. And I think that that's one of the things. I can't wait till later because some of these other ones, I actually put some quotes in and one specifically where he walks through the kind of progression of divine love converting these different stages of love until we have faces. And so I am actually genuinely excited to to let you riff off that a little bit in a good sense to just hear because it's, it is such a difficult book originally if you don't understand it and it takes a few reads. So, the more that you can kind of guide that's better. Sure. That was part of what I talked about with Paul Latino last night. Yeah. And twice in these letters, he calls it his best book. So, thank God for the letters to children to set the simple straight. <laughs> I don't think I'll come to that conclusion, but I will state that the more I have learned about it, the more I have seen what wisdom is sown within there. And it's it's been fun to hear you talk more about it. It was fun to hear Joe Rigney a little bit talk about it. And the more I hear, I'm like, wow, I mean, there's profoundness to it. Yes. We will we will return to this question of till we have faces in the literary <laughs> section next episode. But David, David, David before uh, we sign off though, I got I I wanna I wanna circle back to a letter. I know David's like okay. time here. But but there was some good theological stuff here. These were the parts that I underlined a little bit more. You know, going back to February 15th, he says, I'm just kind of curious your guys' thoughts on this. I thought this was an interesting point, but he says, I'm not at all sure the blessed souls have a strictly timeless being like God. Don't some theologians interpose, this is spelled A-E-V-U-M. Ivum. Ivum. <laughs> as a halfway house between, he uses this, um, like maybe the Latin or something, but temporal and eternal. In general, I'm inclined to think that though the blessed will participate in the divine nature, they will do so always in a mode which does not simply annihilate their humanity. Otherwise, it is difficult to see why the species was created at all. This really fits with the incarnation as well. But I really thought that was an interesting point. It begs the question of, it made me start thinking of a lot of things. Like when we're up in heaven, theological questions of can they, are they timeless? Are they outside of time? Can they see us? You know, what, what kind of traits are bestowed upon those who, who leave the temporal or at least partially leave it and, and pass on to this next stage? And it's just, I don't have any answers, but maybe Andrew does. Well, you know, and once again, Wikipedia, but um, I think this is from Albertus Magnus in the medieval period. Ivum is, this, this says, it's from scholastic philosophy, which is a school of of philosophy. The mm -hmm. temporal mode of existence experienced by angels and by the saints in heaven. In some ways, it is a state that logically lies between the eternity of God, the timelessness, literally having no time, and the temporal experience of material beings. I think as I'm thinking about this, I don't think that they experience timelessness the way that God does because God is without beginning and God mm -hmm. is uncreated. Yeah. As created beings, we still are eternal. And so our life is longer, but our not life is not longer than God's because we had a beginning and no end. Good point. But what you see in God, and that's part of the real humility of the kenosis of Christ, he stoops down from eternity, from timelessness to take on a mortal body that once was not and then was and then was dead and then was raised again. And so, we can be brought close to God in the eternity is what uh, is what they call it, the eternal but created nature um, of Christ. And so, in Him, in the second person of the Trinity, we have the eternal timelessness of God the Father, but also the beginning of Jesus's body that extends onto eternity. And so, yeah, probably, and the angels share it with us because they too were not always there. They were created, mm. but without an, without end. 
the earth had a beginning and will end. Humans have a beginning but will not end. God had no beginning and will not end. What's interesting too is Jesus has no beginning and obviously he's God. No, no, no. Jesus had a beginning. The sun has the no sun. beginning. Yeah, right? so I was, I was going to say that, but his body <laughs> did. So there's like such a unique little thing there. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I've been reading on Thursday or on Tuesdays. I've been reading Cyril of, uh, of Alexandria, mm. fighting with Nestorius of Constantinople about the hypostatic union of God the Son and Christ. Hypostatic. Yes. Two natures in one, in one being. Mm -hmm. And fun fact, my son can identify St. Cyril from any icon. Yay! Wow! Good for him. <laughs> You're raising that boy right. Oh, yeah. The final one I wanted to just point out because I think I also wanted to point these out because the fact that letters to children somehow led to these discussions, as David said, is just mind-blowing. Some of these kids are incredibly smart. He said to someone, I don't know whether Lucifer and Gabriel could really find much ground for reconciliation in the mere fact that they both exist. I suppose the reconciliation of dark and light would be fog. Don't like fog much myself. <laughs> Health and disease both exist in me and are now reconciled in mild invalidism. But really... I'd rather that health had fought and slain his antagonist. I really like that because there are certain things in life. You have to be discerning because compromise can be a beautiful thing. When it comes to like truth and goodness, you just don't compromise. Goodness has to conquer evil. Mm. Truth has to conquer falsehood. <laughs> Opposite mm -hmm. of truth. <laughs> Andrew chuckles. The truth doesn't have to conquer falsehood. It swallows there it up. There we go. Right? Just like hell is a grain of sand on the on the shore of, of heaven in the great divorce. They are proportionally not opposites, right? Good is not the same as or a little bit better than evil, but good is so much bigger and swallows the other up. And, and here too, I think. Well, any concluding thoughts before we wrap things up? Saving them all for next time. <laughs> I love it. Well, I just wanted to end with a line from one of the letters. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope you may always do so. I hear the call for final drinks. So thanks to our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah. Thanks to our intern, Julia. Thanks to our listeners and patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, including Mary, Margaret, Aldo, Alex, James, Matt, Erica, Joel, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for you all every week, particularly on Tuesdays. And Bud 2. Oh, yes, you're quite right. I didn't add Bud 2 on this one. Bud 2, especially him. <laughs> uh, we pray for you all every time an episode goes live. And if you enjoyed this episode, how about writing a letter to a child you know, such as a nephew or niece? One day it might be published. Please join us again next time. When we'll continue going further up. In further in. Cheers. 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 Cheers.